To friends and family, they were a match made in heaven, but behind closed doors, they were a match made in hell. This week, we discuss the Barbie and Ken killers. Let's open the serial killer file. Paul Kenneth Bernardo was born in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada in 1964 to a wealthy but dysfunctional family. His family gained their income from a highly successful tile and marble business, which was passed down to his father, Kenneth Bernardo. His father had a long history of abusiveness towards women. This was especially true for Paul's mother, Marilyn. After the birth of their first daughter, his mother began having an affair with a former boyfriend. This eventually led to the birth of Paul. Regardless of her affair, Kenneth took biological custody over Paul. Unhappy with her marriage, his mother fell into a spiraling depression and unexpectedly withdrew her role as a mother, leaving Paul motherless at a young age. In 1975, Paul's father was charged with molestation after fondling a young girl, including his own daughter. This would open a new door to sadistic behaviors in Paul's life. According to people who knew him, Paul grew up to live a fairly normal and happy life despite his past. In 1986, Paul graduated from the University of Toronto with a degree in accounting. It was during this time when he began dating multiple girls. His boyish good looks allowed him to manipulate any girl he wanted. Though he had his good looks going for him, every relationship failed because of his abusive behavior and aggressive sexual needs. Residents throughout Scarborough would soon fear the worst when Paul began raping young women in the late hours. In March of 1987, multiple women came forward with assault charges targeted towards a tall adult male with blonde hair. DNA samples taken from each victim led to his title as the Scarborough Rapist throughout southern Ontario. Paul's life would change forever when he eventually met a girl attending a high school in St. Catharines, Ontario. Her name was Carla Homolka. It was love at first sight when the two laid eyes on each other at a restaurant in Toronto. Within a matter of hours, they began engaging in sexual acts at Carla's hotel room. This would be the start to a life of sexual crimes together. To Paul, Carla was a gorgeous but naive 17-year-old girl who would do just about anything for him. In December 1987, Paul proposed to Carla two months into their relationship. It was shortly after their proposal when Carla began encouraging in his sexual assaults towards other females. Their dark secrets were well hidden from anyone who knew them. Carla's family approved of her fiancé and believed he would be a great husband and son-in-law. In 1990, he began experiencing a sick obsession with Carla's youngest sister, Tammy. Paul would frequently masturbate to Tammy undressing with the help of Carla, who would open her sister's blinds. She looked up to him like an older brother, while his intentions were anything but sincere towards her. She became the target of his deviant urges. He only wanted one thing that Carla could not give him, her virginity, making Tammy the perfect gift to Paul. Over the Christmas holidays, the Homolkas threw a Christmas party on Christmas Eve in 1990. Once every member in the house was fast asleep, the couple launched their attack on Tammy by inviting her to share a couple of drinks with them. Carla slipped sleeping pills and animal tranquilizer into her sister's drink. Once she fell unconscious, Carla placed a soaking rag of halothane to Tammy's face as Paul proceeded to rape her sister. Carla was then instructed to join and rape her sister with him while videotaping the act in the family living room. It was only a matter of moments before Carla's sister began to wake up and things took an unexpected turn. Tammy began choking on her vomit while lying on the carpet. 
Due to asphyxiation caused by her vomit, she was declared dead at the hospital. When questioned by police, the couple stated that Tammy was a foolish teenager who drank too much, resulting in her accidental death. When asked about the trauma burns on her face, both explained the marks were simply a result of carpet burn after they attempted to revive Carla's younger sister. The cause of death was filed under natural causes. Without a trace, Carla and Paul escaped without any consequences. It was a month after Tammy's funeral in 1991 when the couple moved into a house together in St. Catharines. Police in southern Ontario would no longer receive reports of sexual assaults around Scarborough, but eventually reports of sexual assaults began making its way around St. Catharines. The death of Tammy didn't stop the two from engaging in sadistic acts. In fact, it only encouraged them to move to new targets, specifically targeting younger girls for their virginity. Carla began worshipping Paul, calling him a king who claimed her as a slave during their assaults. In the early morning of June 15, 1991, Paul kidnapped 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey, who was wandering out on her own after her parents locked her out of the house as a consequence for passing her curfew. He then drove his victim to a different location where he informed Carla of their new playmate. The couple began videotaping themselves brutally torturing and sexually abusing the teen. Leslie begged and pleaded for them to stop, promising to never go to police. The couple eventually strangled Leslie and hid her body in their basement before cutting her up into pieces and placing each dismembered limb into 200-pound concrete blocks where they would be placed in Lake Gibson. Police would eventually receive a call from a concerned father and son when Leslie's scattered body parts were found on June 29th, the same day as Paul and Carla's wedding. Dental records were able to identify the remains belonging to Leslie. The thirst for more victims was never quenched for Paul and Carla. It would be their third victim that would cause major headlines in the media. On the afternoon of April 16, 1992, the couple drove nearby Holy Cross Secondary School, scavenging to find their next victim. Carla eventually got out of the vehicle with a map in her hand before luring in Kristen French, a 15-year-old student who lived very close to where she was pulled over. In her vulnerable state, Paul was able to force her into the car with a knife. Within a 24-hour period, Niagara Regional Police sent out an abduction team after the discovery of Kristen's shoe in a parking lot. Over the three days of Easter weekend, the couple videotaped themselves as they tortured and sodomized their victim, forcing her to drink copious amounts of alcohol. Hours before attending an Easter celebration at the Homolkas, Paul strangled Kristen as Carla watched without a care. The gruesome discovery of Kristen's naked body was discovered in a ditch on April 30th, 1992 in Burlington, Ontario, not far away from the burial site of Leslie. Police noted that the body had been cleaned up and the hair on the victim was cut away to intervene with identifying the remains. The composite sketch of Paul was released to the public. Many of his friends were in shock to discover that the sketch looked eerily similar to their very good friend. Paul and Carla were both apprehended after headlines began to scatter across Canada and the United States, and it didn't take long before the couple turned on each other. During Carla's interrogation with investigators in 1993, she testified against Paul, stating that he was abusive towards her and was responsible for the assaults of at least 30 women around southern Ontario. Her plea bargain with police led her to admit that she partook in the death of her sister, Tammy Hamolka, and her husband enjoyed raping her younger sister. Carla was charged with manslaughter and was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Paul's trial for the murders of Leslie and Kristen began in 1995, where he stated that Carla was the mastermind who killed the girls. Homemade videotapes served as crucial pieces of evidence in each trial. 
Paul Bernardo was sentenced to life in prison with a chance of parole in 25 years. He is considered a dangerous offender who will most likely not be released and proceeds to be kept in segregation for his actions. Carla was released in 2005 and is now settled with her husband and three children under a new identity. Paul is still incarcerated, but has recently applied for day parole in Toronto, Canada. Love and passion for similar things can be the ties that bind. But what happens when that similar thing is killing? Today we discuss the serial killing husband and wife, Fred and Rose West. Let's open the serial killer file. Frederick Walter West was born in England on September 29, 1941. His parents were two farmers who may have worked hard to provide for their family, but weren't without their vices. Growing up, Fred was exposed to many sexual acts at a young age. Fred's father, Walter, was known to engage in incestuous relationships with Fred's sisters while teaching the children that it was acceptable to commit bestiality in the household. It was speculated that his own mother began sexually abusing Fred at the age of 12. As a child, Fred lacked interest in school and eventually at the age of 15 dropped out to become a farm laborer. It was not long after when Fred turned 17 that he was involved in a motorcycle accident that caused Fred to sustain a severe head injury which resulted in a coma. The amount of trauma left him with metal plates in his head. This was the beginning to his temperamental attitude. Two years after his first accident, Fred was purposely pushed down a fire escape after attempting to sexually molest a 13-year-old. These instances of head trauma eventually resulted in Fred falling victim to epileptic seizures. With the worsening of his conditions, Fred's family allowed him to stay back in his hometown. It was here that he reunited with an ex-girlfriend named Catherine Rena Costello. Once reuniting with Catherine, Fred found out that Catherine was a prostitute who had become pregnant from one of her customers. Accepting Catherine's career and her pregnancy, Fred married Catherine just after two months and moved into Coatbridge, Scotland. During this time, Fred took up work as an ice cream truck driver. Catherine gave birth to her first daughter, Charmaine, shortly after their move to Scotland on February 22, 1963. It didn't take long before the marriage went sour, however. Fred would constantly demand sex from Catherine, resulting in the birth of their first child together, Anne-Marie. In 1964, Fred's life in Scotland came to an official end when he ran over and killed a four-year-old boy with his ice cream truck. Fearing for his safety, Fred moved his family and their nanny, Issa McNeil, to Bishop's Cleve, Gloucestershire. After moving in 1965, his marriage began to deplete. Catherine was in desperate need to escape Fred's sadistic sexual demands and fled to Scotland in 1966 without the children. She would occasionally return to visit the children every few months, but seemed to stop showing up after a few years. Despite the separation, Fred and Catherine's friend Anne McFall soon became infatuated with Fred and became pregnant with his child in 1967. Anne eventually went missing when she was eight months pregnant. Fred never filed a missing persons report and continued on with his life. On November 28, 1968, Fred's life would change forever when he met a woman by the name of Rosemary Letts at her job in Gloucester. She was only 15 years old at the time, but that didn't stop Fred. The two eventually moved in together and in 1970 had their first child together, Heather. 
That same year, Fred was in prison for theft. It was at this time that there were many accusations of Rose murdering Fred's stepdaughter, Charmaine, after she too went missing. According to Anne Marie, each of the siblings were subject to frequent beatings at the hands of Rose while Fred was serving his time. On January 29, 1972, Fred and Rose married in Gloucester and had their second child named May. Rose was naive when it came to pleasing Fred and eventually turned to prostitution after Fred proposed her to make some extra cash. Fred and Rose eventually had seven additional children together. The family moved to 25 Cromwell Street, a place that would eventually become known as the House of Horrors. Rose continued prostituting herself and with Fred's approval would engage in having sex with her own father. During Rose's prostitution sessions, Fred would often hide in the adjoining room and watch through a hole in the wall. In October 1972, the West hired 17-year-old Catherine Roberts as the children's nanny. She rejected Fred and Rose's engagement into their sex circle and in turn was raped by both husband and wife. Not satisfied, Fred and Rose's sexual abuse escalated to their children. In 1973, the West trapped Fred's first daughter, Anne Marie, in a cellar where he bound and raped her as Rose watched. In 1979, Anne Marie became pregnant by her father but terminated the pregnancy. Not being able to cope with the extensive abuse, Anne eventually left. Things didn't change though, the West took it up a notch and eventually began to sexually abuse their daughter Heather, who eventually disappeared. On August of 1992, police decided to investigate the West, leading to Fred being charged and Rose being an accomplice to the rapes. Rose was later charged with child cruelty, resulting in their final two children being sent to foster care for further evaluation by social workers. It was common to hear the West joke about keeping Heather buried under their patio. This eventually led to police filing a warrant on the property in 1994. Shortly after filing a warrant, police investigated the property and found a burial ground underneath Fred and Rose's garden, something they weren't at all expecting to actually find. Two dismembered and decapitated female corpses were discovered. One was believed to be that of Heather West, according to police. After many hours of interrogation, Fred admitted to the murders. However, he insisted that Rose had absolutely no involvement in any of them. Fred had also admitted to burying nine bodies under the cellar of the house and also confessed to the whereabouts of his former wife, Catherine, his previous lover, Anne McFall, and his stepdaughter, Charmaine. This resulted in Fred West being charged with 12 counts of murder. Fred was taken into custody in Winston Green Prison on December 13, 1994. While awaiting his trial on January 1, 1995, Fred hanged himself by knotting his bedsheets together in his cell. Rose West later admitted to her participation in the sexual assaults. With her violent and dishonest behavior, the jury found Rose West guilty on 10 counts of murder. Rose's sentence was extended to a life sentence without any possibility of parole after the speculation of there being far more than just 12 killings. The West home at 25 Cromwell Street was eventually demolished in 1996 and is now just a pathway leading to the town center. And it leaves behind the dark remains of a past never to be forgotten. Parents, they're there to love us, nurture us, and guide us through life so we may lead a life of prosperity and happiness. Well, they're meant to, at least. Unfortunately for one man, what should have been a second chance let him down a dark path in life, one of madness and murder. 
Today we discuss Joseph Callinger, the shoemaker. Let's open the serial killer file. Joseph Callinger was born Joseph Lee Brenner III on December 11, 1935 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Judith and Joseph Brenner Jr. His early life was tumultuous to say the least. At only a year old, he was placed up for adoption after his father abandoned the family and his mother could no longer care for him. He was adopted by Austrian immigrants Stephen and Anna Callinger on October 15, 1939. However, his new family would not bring him the stability and comfort he required. His adoptive parents were extremely abusive, both physically and verbally, beating him for even minor indiscretions. He would be locked in closets, forced to kneel on rocks, starved, and even whipped. At the age of six, he developed a hernia which required surgery. After returning home, his parents taunted him, telling him the doctor had fixed his little bird while he was in the hospital, implying he would be rendered impotent. Joseph's parents refused to let him enjoy normal childhood activities, like riding a bike, having birthday parties, or playing with neighborhood children, instead forcing him to work after school and on weekends in his father's shoe shop in order to train to take over the family business. In 1947, when he was eight years old, his mother bashed him over the head with a hammer for defiantly stating he wanted to go to the zoo on a class trip. The same year, he was sexually molested at knife point by three older boys while on his way home from running an errand. Afraid of the punishment he may have received for not coming straight home, he refused to tell his parents, and the boys went unpunished. At age 10, a desperate Joseph sought out friends by stealing money from his parents and bribing neighborhood children to attend movies with him. Once caught, his parents burned his fingers on the stove to burn the demon thief out of the fingers that steal, they said. He continued stealing, enduring the painful punishment each time he was caught until finally relenting from the pain. In his teen years, Joseph aspired to become a playwright, rebelling against his parents and teachers. He starred as Ebenezer Scrooge in the ninth grade in a local production of A Christmas Carol. Eventually, his parents began letting him attend the theater on Saturdays, which is where he met and began dating a girl named Hilda Bergman when he was only 15. His parents highly disapproved of their relationship, which quickly became sexual. However, Joseph persisted, dropping out of school and marrying her in 1952 at the age of 17. The marriage produced two children but ended in divorce in 1956 due to domestic violence at the hands of Joseph. The divorce caused major stress for Joseph and he was hospitalized a year later for issues thought to be caused by stress. He would go on to marry his second wife, Elizabeth, on April 20th, 1958 and have five more children with her. Joseph attempted to be a good father, working as a shoemaker in his family's shoe shop and involving himself in his children's school activities. His mental state began to deteriorate over time, however. He committed arson by setting the family home on fire 
1958 and collected $1,600 and an insurance payout and would do so four more times over the next nine years. In 1959, he was committed to a mental hospital for attempting suicide. In 1972, he was arrested on child abuse charges after branding his oldest daughter with a hot utensil as punishment for running away, in addition to two of his older children also claiming abuse. He was found incompetent to stand trial after testing found him to have an IQ of 82, as well as being a paranoid schizophrenic. His children later recanted their initial allegations, and Joseph was released. By 1974, Joseph began hearing the voice of God, emanating from the disembodied head he referred to as Charlie. The voice ordered Joseph to begin killing young boys and to sever their genitals. In early July of that year, he enlisted the help of his 13-year-old son, Michael, to help him carry out his horrific plans. His first victim was a 10-year-old Puerto Rican boy named Jose Colazo, whom he and his son lured to an abandoned factory before torturing and severing his genitals, then asphyxiating him to death. Joseph's next victim would end up being his own son, 14-year-old Joseph Jr. He made several attempts on his son's life before he and Michael drowned him and dumped his body at a demolition site in August of 1974. The police could not arrest him due to a lack of evidence. However, the insurance company that he had taken out a policy with on his son's life refused to pay out, suspecting foul play. The father-son duo eventually began extending their crime spree outwards to neighboring cities and states. On November 22nd, the two broke into a home in Lindenwold, New Jersey, but found no one to be home. The same day, the pair broke into the home of Joan Carty. Joseph sexually assaulted her after they tied her to the bed. Less than two weeks later, the two broke into a home in Susquehanna Township, Pennsylvania, where they took five women having a bridge game hostage. They robbed them at knife point of $20,000 worth of cash and jewelry, as well as cutting one of the women's breasts. They then traveled to Homeland, Maryland, and held Pamela Jasky at gunpoint, forcing her to perform oral sex on Joseph. Later, on January 6th, the pair committed the same acts on Mary Rudolph at her home in Dumont, New Jersey. The final wave of crime for the father and son came to a conclusion on January 8, 1975, when Joseph and Michael entered the Leonia, New Jersey home of the DeWitt Romaine family. Home at the time was 28-year-old Edwina Dede Romaine Wiseman, her 3-year-old son Robert, and her 90-year-old grandmother whom she was caring for. Joseph and Michael forced their way in at knife and gunpoint, taking mother and son hostage. He stripped them both naked, took Dede's jewelry, and bound and gagged them up on a bed in an upstairs bedroom. Soon after, Dede's sister Randy returned home, and she too was taken hostage. They demanded money from her and bound her just as they had bound her sister and nephew. The women had indicated more people were on their way to the house. However, Joseph was prepared. As their mother Edwina DeWitt Romaine, sister Retta, and Retta's boyfriend Frank Welby returned home, they too were taken hostage. The three were bound and gagged by Joseph and Michael, after which they searched the house for valuables. Not long after they had finished binding the last three hostages, a knock at the door was heard. 
21-year-old Maria Fashing, a neighbor and nurse who had come over to help care for their grandmother, was standing at their door. Maria was taken hostage by Joseph, forcing her and a bound and gagged Frank into the basement. After threatening Frank to keep him from trying to escape, he slit Maria's throat. Edwina DeWitt Romaine, having not had her hands bound earlier, managed to crawl her way through the front door and screamed for help. Michael signaled to his father that someone was coming. The two fled the scene and got on the city bus, dumping their weapons in a bloodstained t-shirt on their way home. The Callengers fell under police suspicion after they had found the t-shirt. Aside from this, eyewitness descriptions and police sketches produced of the suspects matched their descriptions. Police also learned of the suspicious circumstances surrounding Joseph Jr.'s death and his prior child abuse charges. On January 17, 1975, police arrested Joseph, Michael, and his 11-year-old son James on the charges of kidnapping, rape, burglary, and Maria Fashing's murder. James was later released after concluding he was not the son involved in the crimes. Once in jail, Joseph began to behave erratically, claiming he had been alive for a thousand years as a butterfly and was on a mission from God, as well as attempting suicide numerous times. During his first trial, he was declared schizophrenic by psychologists but found fit to stand trial but he could not convince the jury he was insane. The case against him was too strong, and he was found guilty on September 18, 1975, on the charges of burglary, robbery, and kidnapping, and sentenced to 30 to 80 years in prison. His second trial for the Leonia crimes and the murders of his son and Jose Colazzo commenced on September 13, 1976. His erratic behavior had not ceased, but worsened. During the trial, he had to be removed due to his disruptive conduct. Despite pleading guilty, his behavior did little to sway the opinions of those in the court, who all believed he was only acting. He was later found guilty on all charges and was sentenced to life in prison on October 14, 1976. He was eventually committed to a mental hospital in 1979 after numerous violent incidents and suicide attempts, including attempting to set himself on fire. Joseph Callinger died of heart failure and a seizure on March 26, 1996 at the State Correctional Institution in Crescent Township, Pennsylvania at the age of 60. As for Michael Callinger, he was found to have been under the control of his father and was given a very much reduced sentence. He changed his name upon finishing his sentence at age 21 and moved out of the state and to this day has not been heard from since and his whereabouts are unknown. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. 
We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.